All right, tonight, turn to your Bibles. Again, we are in this incredible passage of Scripture that chiefly deals with the nation Israel. And again, while we believe and know that God has a perfect plan and a purpose for national Israel, for the literal Jewish people, we also can see a whole bunch of similitude in the things that are going on in the lives of the Jewish people and the lives of people who yet do not know the Lord. And so, While this specifically is pointed at the Jewish people, it is absolutely prophetically speaking forth into the lives of anyone who does not know the Lord who is relying on some kind of self-righteousness. I will remind you again that the world loves religion. If you don't believe that, travel to any place in the world. You may not find a hospital or a medical clinic, but you'll find a church. You may not find a grocery store, but you'll find a church. You may not find a place that you could call home, but you're probably going to find a church. People are inherently religious. And because of that, a lot of different reasonings for how people can come to a right relationship with God are spread all over the globe. And so the Apostle Paul now begins to speak here in verse 4 of Romans chapter 10. Uh, In verse 4, and we're continuing kind of the theme of the reasons that the Jewish people have largely failed to see Messiah, but also why people today, uh, right here in South Bay, oftentimes don't want much to do with Jesus. And so would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in verse 4. Down to verse 10 of Romans 10. Father, again, we have come tonight as your your family, your children, your people. And we are looking to you and to your spirit to speak to us tonight. And we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds. And maybe someone tonight uh, is looking for some way to work their way to heaven. Something that they can do to receive your provision of grace some self-worked righteousness. And God, that'll never work. The law can't save. And so, Lord, would you bless us with your presence in your house tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4, for Christ, notice this, and be very careful. If you're reading along in the New King James, very accurate rendering of the original language here. You have to take a very close look at what's being said here. For Christ is the end of the law. Notice it doesn't say period. Doesn't say comma. It is a continuing sentence for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness but only to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. You see, the Jewish people believed that somehow the law itself, if kept meticulously, could produce righteousness. And yet the sum and total of the Old Testament tells exactly the opposite story. That not only did the law not produce righteousness, it actually accentuated unrighteousness in people. So many examples are there in the Old Testament that you could just almost pick a place and begin to read. You look at the history of the Jewish people. They're delivered by God from Pharaoh. They're brought miraculously across the Red Sea. They're brought into a land that they should die in, but they're fed miraculously with quail and with manna. They can't find water. There's a bitter spring. A tree is thrown into it. It becomes sweet. They're at the base of Mount Horeb. They're wandering around, and Moses takes off for 40 days to receive the commandments. And before Moses can even return with them, he barely gets down the mountain and they're back to worshiping golden idols. The story of the deliverance of the law 
that was supposed to bring people to the knowledge of Messiah is that that righteousness that they sought was always a human work and it was never good enough. It always fell short. And so now the Apostle Paul begins to speak of Moses himself in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. You see, there was a righteousness of the law. But it wasn't a complete righteousness because the law was never kept completely. No person could ever do that. And as I've I've reminded you, if you just break the law down to the Ten Commandments, which it's not, the law was actually the totality of the law, everything contained within the Old Testament, more than 600 individual commands and precepts, feast days, things that the Jewish people were required to do, in essence told by God, do this, and, and you'll have a right relationship. But you just throw all that out and just keep the Ten Commandments. There's not a person in this room who would with absolute perfection keep only the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, maybe I'll make that one. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. We're out. Every last year driving down the freeway, I want that car. Why do they have that car? I don't have that car. You pull up to your house. Well, how come we only have three bedrooms? I want four bedrooms. I want that shirt. I want that blouse. You know, how come their hair looks like that? We are dead at thou shalt not covet. Amen? We're not going to make it. We're not going to keep that perfectly. It's just simply not going to happen. Why? Because we are sinners deeply in need of a Savior And unless you change the internal nature of the sinner into a saint who's saved, the sin nature continues to rule. And so Paul is drawing us to this place of understanding. What was really the problem was not the law. It wasn't that people couldn't see what was necessary. It wasn't that it wasn't visible to them. In fact, Paul was so specific when he wrote to the church at Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, he actually says this. He says, the law was intended to be a tutor, a schoolmaster unto Christ. and, And as a tutor would come and instruct, the tutor isn't sharing everything. The tutor's sharing the main thing so that you can grasp the subject matter. The law could only get you to the place, man, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. It was supposed to push the Jewish people, in essence, to the Savior himself. He goes on to say, Moses wrote about the righteousness which is of the law, and the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend unto heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's actually in your mouth. And in your heart. That's the word of faith that we preach. That if you can... Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Incredible picture of the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, between understanding facts and figures and confession that leads unto repentance and relationship. That's the problem still to this day. That's why there's a church on every corner, that's why there's religion all over the world. That's why people actually love, they cling to religion. 
You know, very often when, when people have gotten in trouble and they come in and they're asking for counsel, they'll usually say, what do I need to do to get right with God? That is a very common thing I hear. And they're looking for me to say, well, you know, you need to do this and do that and do this and do that. And if you do seven of these and eight of those and, you know, you, man, you've got to teach Sunday school. They're looking for me to say what it is they need to do so they can be right with God. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Scripture says. Because there is nothing you can do that's ever or could ever, has ever been able to make you righteous. Not a thing. No amount of law keeping, because you couldn't keep it perfectly. No amount of religion. No amount of being in church constantly, frequently, and forever. The only way that we have a right relationship with God has zero to do with what you do. It is what you believe and what you confess that leads to repentance and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to break this down for us. And we need to not be ignorant of these things. And there are really several issues in this passage that Israel as a nation was ignorant of. And the first one of those was the cross of Christ. You see, they had almost an arrogant self-satisfaction. And, and rather than point out the fault or the weakness, because we'd all had the same thing had we been there. It's not so much a problem that it is with the Jewish people. It was solely their problem. It's people's problem to this day. You see, there was an arrogant self-reliance and self-righteousness that had blinded them to the need for the cross of Christ. In other words, they already thought they were okay with God. They thought they were okay with God because they were Jews. They were of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of their heritage, because of their lineage, they were blessed because they were tied into the Abrahamic covenant. They were tied into the Davidic covenant. They were tied into the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. And because of those things, like no other people who have ever existed on the face of the earth, They thought simply by being born a Jew, they were automatically better than everybody else on the planet Earth. They were a step ahead because they were Jewish. Can I tell you that there are people that think they're a step ahead because their parents were Baptist? There are people who are a step ahead, they think, because you come to Calvary Chapel. There are people who think they're a step ahead Because they go on mission trips. There are people who think they're a step ahead because they serve in children's ministry. There are people who think they're a step ahead because their Bible weighs 47 pounds. (laughs) They think they're a step ahead because they know Near Eastern languages. They think they're a step ahead for all kinds of reasons. They think they have a leg up in righteousness because they have done something that makes them better than most other people. Brothers and sisters, all that ever does is make you more accountable for what you do know. It does not put you into a right relationship with God. It never has, it never will, it never can. It's that simple. So you have to be careful in your own life, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, to make sure that your righteousness is not self-righteousness because your self-righteousness will never be good enough. Jesus was a stumbling stone to the Jewish people. He was stum- the prophet Isaiah said it first. Paul would relate it to the Roman. We've already seen it in chapter 8. He was the stum- They stumbled over Jesus. They didn't want that Messiah. 
wanted something very different. They were blind to the new covenant. They were blind to grace. It's so amazing to me how many people are blind to grace. Blind to love. Blind to their own sinfulness. Just plain blind. You know, the prophet Isaiah was so momentarily opened up to his own sinfulness, he actually declared, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, and what he was looking at, the train of the robe of the Lord spilled from the temple to the earth. And when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, when he saw God for who God is, he fell on his face. And he said, Lord, how could you ever love someone like me? You know how? Grace. Not works. Grace. Righteousness that comes by faith alone in Christ alone producing grace in our lives. You see, the real problem is nobody's good enough. Oh, we think we are. And the reason we think we are is we compare ourselves to other people. Can I just tell you something? You can always find somebody who's worse than you. You wander around, you talk to people here in the sanctuary, wow, you're really a mess. You can come talk to me, it might be better than I am. You, you can always find someone who's worse than you. But the problem is, that's not the standard. The standard's not some other good person. The standard is the perfection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And you ain't going to get there by yourself. It's not happening. That's why the example of Paul himself. Now remember, as he recounts his own story to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, there in verses 5 and 6, he says this about himself. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I like to think of him as kind of like super Jewish. He was like the magnificent Hebrew one. You know, he would have had a, like his own superhero costume with a big H right in the middle of it. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. If there was ever a super Hebrew, it was him. As to the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. That's another way of saying I was legalistically spot on in everything I knew about the law. Meticulous. So much so that Jesus said about him, look, you guys are over there in your spice cabinet dividing up the mint and the cumin, but you don't have the big thing, the big thing. You think the little thing's the big thing. This is how Paul saw himself. You see what he would go on, go on to say in that passage is, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he said I was blameless. But you know what he went on to say? Verses 8 and 9, all those things are to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. All of that Jewishness, all of that righteousness that was in the law, because the the law itself was righteous, it was good. Matter of fact, the law, you could say, of itself was in fact perfect. It came from God. But no one could keep it perfectly. No one had it nailed. And he would go on to say, he says, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, is only on the basis of faith. It wasn't on what Paul did. He was really good at being a law keeper. But he was really lost as a law keeper. And until we acknowledge our own unrighteousness in the in the divine light of his perfection. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this. 
Maybe you get a little quiet time by yourself. You're walking, you take a little hike. You maybe go to the coastal cliffs and just kind of sit and watch the waves roll in. And think about who you are in light of who God is. Very often what happens to me is I'll be looking, there'll be an ant going across. It's like, yep, that's me. You see, compared to God, we are dust. We're nothing. And yet he loves us so much that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into this world that the world, the whole cosmos, would be saved through him. That's mind-boggling. Why? Because nobody is good enough. We can't save ourselves. You see, you can't fulfill the law. It just simply can't happen. No matter how hard you try, no matter how long you try. If, if, and it's, it, it's a study in religion when you look at what people do to try and beat back their own flesh. You can travel to places in Mexico and you can find people that, especially around Lent, are breaking, having someone break glass in front of them. They're crawling on their hands and knees in broken glass to go make it to the steps of the cathedral so that they can prove their dedication to God. Can I tell you something? You don't need to do that. That's why Jesus died on the cross. is so that you don't need to bleed. He bled for you. He died a sinner's death so that we could live a righteous life. That's the only way we'll ever get acceptable to God. Second thing was Israel was actually ignorant of their own law. They began to actually worship the law. Now, now hear what I'm going to say very closely. They began to worship the law, not the Lord. They began to worship law-keeping. Feast days, celebrations, meticulously keeping the very minutia of the law. Well, I can't travel. You know, if my shadow should be cast too far in front of me while I'm on my journey to, to the Sabbath day. Can you imagine the, the Jewish people during the time of the implementation of the law? They're on Friday afternoon and, and they're away from their village and all of a sudden they realize they're looking at the sun and it's near the horizon. They're like, oh my goodness, I hope I can get within a quarter mile of home before the sun goes down. Otherwise, I'm in violation of the law. Or you're carrying a load of goods and it's nearing the Sabbath day and you haven't gotten home to store them yet. What do you do? Just give them to someone? Walk away from them? Hope the robbers don't take them? Because you couldn't have carried them home. They would have been a burden to you by the law. You can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. No matter how expensive that burden is, no matter how much time you invested in that burden, you, you, you see, the law was not meant to save anyone. It was intended to leave people hopelessly lost. You see, what the law was supposed to do is go, this is too hard. I, I'll never make it. If I have to do this, I can't. Everything, everything about the Jewish religion pointed to Jesus. The feast days pointed to the cross of Christ. The Sabbath itself was the rest that's given by Messiah on the cross. The, the priesthood was a picture of the royal priesthood of Jesus. The temple services were to specifically speak. That's why Jesus went to the temple so often. That's where he declared, he's look, the menorah's there. I am the light of the world. That's what he was doing. 
You see, the problem is, is people love religion. And they think that the law-keeping and the law-doing and the law-giving and the law itself is going to save. And it doesn't, and it can't. And so Paul begins to quote, instead of seeing the law as a signpost that's, that's pointing to Jesus, that Galatians 3 signpost, a tutor, a schoolmaster there in verse 24. You, you see, they didn't see that. What they saw was, if I'm better than somebody else at doing this stuff, and if God's law is good, then if I'm the best at keeping the law, then I must be the most okay with God. Not, I'm still lost because I didn't keep it perfectly. Praise the Lord for grace. Amen? And so he begins to quote from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and these passages. We don't need to read them again. He says, look, you don't believe from your heart. The issue is not you understanding something. The issue is you don't believe in your heart that you yourself need a Savior. That's the problem. They, they, they thought somehow they would get there, and they, they simply couldn't. So he states the purpose of the law for him. He says, look, it's a commandment. When someone gives you a commandment, it's not, uh, it's not an option for you. The commands of the law were a direct indictment against the spiritual condition of every single Jewish person. And brothers and sisters, by grace, the commands of God's law are an indictment against every single person in this room. There's still an indictment. Why? Because we don't do them perfectly. I thumb through, love my neighbor. Have you heard their dogs? (laughs) Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute me. I don't think so. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, when you begin to look at it from that place, you need grace, amen? I need grace. Maybe you don't need grace. I need grace. I need mercy. And oh, dear Jesus, do I need faith to believe that he loves me in spite of my weaknesses. That he loves me. He's not holding up the law and going, man, Jeff, you're still dead. You see, what happens is God holds up the law, and then he puts Jesus in front of the law. He says, that's all covered. It's covered by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. He's my King. Because I want him to be my king. I've invited him into my life. You see, we don't have, as it says here, should we try and bring God down from heaven? Should we try and lift him up from below? The answer is no, we don't need to do that. He already came here. Did you ever think of that? You know, because people think they need to go somewhere to find Jesus. You don't. He's here. He's here. Wherever you are, He's there by the power of the Spirit. You see, the Jewish people were always running to Jerusalem. They were running to the feast days. They were running to make sure they kept Sabbath. They were making sure they didn't glean in the wrong part of the field. They were taking every single thing they had and divide a little bit of the barley out of this and make sure the Lord got part of it. And if they baked ten loaves, a loaf went to the Lord. They were meticulous. But that isn't what the Lord wanted. He said, could we sit down and break that loaf together? I don't want you to give it to me. I want to share it with you. You see, that's grace. The law says this is what you do. Grace says this is what he's already done. 
This passage is so beautiful when you think about how the Lord responds to us. You see, the gospel is open to anyone by faith. The law was open to no one because it was impossible. Think about it. Yes, theoretically, there might have been someone who could have kept the law which would have necessitated that everyone keep it. But because God knows the heart of man, the law was sufficiently difficult that no one could do it. Not even the high, that's why the high priest would offer a sacrifice for himself before he went into the Holy of Holies. He was so convinced of his own unrighteousness, he said, just to be safe, I'm going to tie a scarlet cord around my ankle, make sure my bells will still ring, so if they stop, they'll grab the cord, pull me out, maybe I won't die instantaneously in there when the glory of God falls on me. He had no confidence that his own personal righteousness was going to be okay. Matter of fact, he had zero confidence. And so he offers up a sacrifice for himself first and his family. You see, the just have always been by necessity, those who have lived by faith. And so there's some contrasts here, and I want you to see these things. And they're the contrast between faith righteousness and law righteousness. Because again, the law was righteous. It was put together by God. But look at what happens. You see, the law righteousness was only for the Jews. It was only for the Jews. They were the only ones that were given the law. We were not ever given the law as Gentiles. The Jewish people were given the law. But faith righteousness is for whosoever will believe. It's for everybody. The law righteousness, based on works. Do this. Faith righteousness comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Law righteousness was completely self. It was self-righteousness in essence. It's like, I'm going to do these things so I can be right with God. Faith righteousness is God's righteousness given to us as a gift. You see the contrast? Now follow this list. Because as we're going through these things, you're going to see one side is completely impossible and the other side is possible for anyone who will believe. Law righteousness cannot save. It never could. That's why the feasts were constantly repeated. That's why the sacrifices were constantly given. That's why every year on Yom Kippur, no high priest ever stood at the, at the gate of the temple, and it's Yom Kippur, and, and they're walking. Well, you know, we can just skip it this year. Everybody's been awesome. Never happened. Every time the Day of Atonement came up, the high priest is like, oh, no, not again. I've got to go in there. And Lord, you know the people. You see, it couldn't save, but faith righteousness absolutely saves to the uttermost, to all who will believe. The law righteousness was to obey the Lord. It was completely based on obedience, law-keeping, in other words. But faith righteousness is I call upon the name of the Lord. He's righteous, and so I call upon his name. I'm not trying to do something. I'm saying, you did it, and I'm asking that you cover mine, because mine's not going to be good enough. And finally, the law righteousness, and here's the horrible thing about it. The more you try and keep it, the more prideful you get about keeping it. Faith righteousness is never about you, and it only glorifies God. It's this crazy picture of, of how we sometimes function in our little kind of pea brains, right? 
And Paul's using the term law here in its very most general sense. Totality of all the commands. Now think about it in that way. Think of the entire Bible, everything that God has ever said about how we are supposed to act, respond to other people, the way we conduct ourselves in this world, and ask yourself a very simple question. Is there any possibility, given you lived inside of a box, has air conditioning and food, that you could ever keep that? The answer is no. You'd start complaining about the food, the size of your box. You, you wouldn't make it five minutes before you'd be ceremonially unrighteousness, unrighteous. And so the only thing that can save us, brothers and sisters, the only thing is faith. That's why Colossians, when it says there in chapter 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive. You didn't become alive. You didn't all of a sudden earn aliveness. You didn't wake up in the morning. None of you, when you woke up in the morning, gained some mental knowledge and said, if I do this, 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 and this, I'm going to be okay with God. And it was the actions that saved you. You believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. His name is Jesus Christ our Lord. And you confessed that with your mouth. And God gave you faith to believe. And that faith produced grace in your life. And you became in a right relationship with God and seen perfect in Christ Jesus not because you did a single thing, but because you asked for the grace gift. That's the difference. So it's never been about what you've done. It's always been about what he did. It's always been about faith righteousness. Such an incredible picture, but Israel is ignorant of that role of faith. Notice what it says, and we'll pick up in verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. It's the word of faith that we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, can I just share with you, there's a lot of people who confess a lot of things, but there's a couple of things you absolutely have to confess. You have to confess a couple of things in order to have genuine salvation. One is Jesus Christ is Lord. The other is that he was raised from the dead. Those two things are a necessary part of saving faith. Because if Jesus isn't raised from the dead then you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. The sacrifice wasn't enough if he's just an alive, really good dude. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he didn't pay the price. And if he's not Lord of your life, he's probably not Lord at all. And so he says, look, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, ignorance in that sense is fairly common. A lot of people have that type of ignorance. They always think that it's just, you know, well, if I just kind of get it right, I do this church thing. I make sure that I have my I's dotted and T's crossed in some religious way, and I'm going to be okay with God. Look, it's a dead end. That type of life can't save. In other words, even if it were possible, a person who has failed at only a minute portion of the law is still eternally damned and lost. That's a fact because the standard isn't you, it's not me, 
It's not someone else's keeping of the law. It's absolutely 100% perfection. Not one yot, not one tittle of the law did Jesus come to erase, but he came to fulfill absolutely all of it because we can't. That's the beauty of the, of the analogy that's put forth in this passage. Because without real saving faith, and that real saving faith says to you and says to me, as an imperative to your salvation, just exactly as Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Period. End of conversation. You're toast without faith is another way to look at it. So you've got to have it. But unfortunately, a lot of people are utterly deceived. Their basis of salvation is what they can do for God. And the fact of the matter is, you can't do enough. It's not possible. And so the only way you can do enough is by not doing, but by being. By believing in what Christ did for you. And I love that. Because you know what? I know a lot of really messed up people. Uh, And the longer I'm on this earth, the more I realize, oh, how wise the plan of God is. Because you know what? If we sat down and we did a little experiment and we're going to make up our own method of salvation and we're going to boil it down to, let's say, one thing. One thing. You have to eat a Butterfinger candy bar. Now, I don't know about you. I personally like Butterfinger candy bars. If you offered me one, it's gone. I love to crunch those up and put them in my ice cream. And yes, I'm messing with you a little bit right now. But that seems like something. It's like, well, how hard can that be? I mean, come on. In order to have a right relationship with God, all you have to do is take a bite of a Butterfinger candy bar. Can I tell you that people are going to perish and go to hell if that's the only requirement? Let me tell you why. There are people who are allergic to chocolate, allergic to peanut butter, There are people who wouldn't believe that the Butterfinger can save. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why God's so wise. Because he doesn't leave anything for us to do. Because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that the necessitation of faith, which your Bible says is a gift... It's given to you is what one needs. So there is nothing to do, nothing to be allergic to, nothing you need to bite, nothing that lies with you. Even the faith to believe is simply by you just asking. Anyone and everyone can do that. Anyone and everyone can do that. Oh, the beauty of faith. You see, real saving faith works in two very unique truths. And they're super simple. To deep, personal, abiding conviction. No reservation and no qualification. Hear me well. No reservation, you're all in. And no qualification, there's nothing for you to do on your part. Real saving faith is that you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's it. What results from that saving faith is this. You must believe that Jesus Christ was God's own son and he was raised from the dead. That's not mental understanding of those things. And I want you to grab this. I want you to get a hold of it. 
because there's a unique passage in the book of James, in James chapter 2, and it says there in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and tremble. Do you understand what James is saying there? He's saying it's not even understanding a certain set of things. It's not about knowledge. You see, because demons know, because they were there when the world was created. Demons know because they were there and behind the scenes when Jesus was crucified. Demons know that Christ is absolutely raised from the dead. They were hovering around the tomb trying to get everybody to leave him in there. Demons have all the knowledge necessary of who God is, who the Holy Spirit is, and who Jesus Christ, God's Son, is. They absolutely know who He is. They know 100% of everything they need to know to be saved. But they do not believe. So it's not about what you know. It's about faith. It's about us believing that Jesus Christ is God's own Son. He died on Calvary's cross. It's about His Lordship. You see, people can have a completely orthodox view of God and not be saved. It's not about what you know. It is about who you know and how you know Him. Do you know Him? That name is the name above every name, according to Philippians chapter 2. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's the name above every name. It's the name in the book of Revelation. When he comes, when he returns, it's going to be written on his thigh. The Lord of hosts. Now, I want to share something with you, and people often miss this. We love the word Savior. And it's a great word. Amen? Amen. Jesus is my Savior. But can I share with you? In the book of Acts, only twice was Jesus called Savior. Ninety-two times he was called Lord. In the whole rest of the New Testament, he's only mentioned as Savior ten times. Over 700 times he was mentioned as Lord. D.L. Moody was right. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, could it be that he's not Lord at all? You see, the Lordship of Jesus Christ means that you have given your life over to his leadership, to his directorship. You have said, Lord, my life is exchanged for yours. My life is forfeit. My life is now, according to chapter 12, which we'll get to shortly, a living sacrifice. It is no longer I who live. In fact, it is Christ who lives in me. That's real saving faith. And that's why it is not a matter uh, of your head. It is a matter of your heart. It's, it's what you believe that brings you into a right relationship with God. Don't miss that. Don't misrepresent the gospel to people around you. Because you know what? Here's what happens. You'll start making up criteria that people have to meet so they can be saved. And you'll start judging whether they're actually going to be saved by whether they keep your criteria or not. Your Bible says to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. And that God raised him from the dead. That's not you go to a certain church. That's not you say the sinner's prayer a certain way. That's not, if you get saved, you do this, 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 and this, and that proves that you're saved. It says, if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And that means you really believe on his name, by the way. This is not cheap grace. But let's keep grace, grace, amen? And not turn grace into some other kind of work, which is what a lot of churches do. Grace now becomes a work, and faith becomes yet another work. You are saved by grace and through faith. It is a gift of God. No one can boast about it. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those good works come as an after effect of believing in his name. You see, it's a matter of your heart, not just of your head. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that this is true. Oh, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving us who have believed on your name. And Lord, I want to pray tonight, perhaps there is someone here, perhaps there's someone here who doesn't know you. Oh, they've been religious. They've been going to church for a long time. But they've never confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, we want to give them an opportunity right now to know you and the power of your resurrection. And if that's you, wherever you're sitting in the sanctuary, just slip your hand up. I want to pray with you. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, put your hand up so I can see it. I want to pray with you. Anybody at all, see that hand. Praise God. Anyone else? I see that hand as well. Praise the Lord. Don't mistake what the Lord's saying to you tonight. His grace is sufficient for you. Just keep your hand up for a few moments. I'm going to pray with you. See that hand as well. Praise God. For those of you that just raised your hands, would you pray this prayer after me? And you have to believe in your heart these things. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a Savior. I'm a sinner. And I need you as a Savior. And I know I can't save myself. And so I'm asking you to save me from myself. Pray that you would take my life and change it. I'm asking you to be my Lord. I'm committing my life to you, to your leadership, to your lordship. I'm telling you I'll walk with you all my days by faith. Lord, give me the gift of faith to believe. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Lord, help me as I walk with you to do your will. I believe that you've been raised from the dead and that one day I will be raised. Thank you for that promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Welcome. Praise the Lord.